Hello everyone. Welcome to Risk Roundup. Since the beginning of the technological age, each new idea, innovation and invention has helped humans across nations usher in a new era of technological age and economic growth, thereby changing the very fundamentals and foundation of nations and its security. In this new era of computing, the revolution and evolution of human ecosystem is also so inevitable. So when nations have already started feeling the impact of disruptive technologies from cyberspace and because of cyberspace in geospace and space, the question is how will the emerging technology trends define and determine the global trajectory in the coming years? It seems that geopolitical factors will likely pay, play a determining role in the process. Now while existing and emerging technologies brings each nation a promise of great potential. They also bring major geopolitical challenges that impacts not only national security, but also security of the very humanity. It is therefore important to understand and evaluate how are existing and emerging technologies redefining national power? What are the social and political consequences of the technological change on any level, global, national, local? Which innovations, trends, and geopolitical implications of the emerging technologies bring nations strategic security risk? And how can nations prepare for any existential security threats? To discuss emerging technology trends and future of geopolitics further, I'm delighted to welcome Abhishu Prakash to Risk Roundup. Abhishu is a geopolitical futurist at Center for Innovating the Future. He is also the author of the books Next Geopolitics, The Future of World Affairs, Technology, Volume 1 and Volume 2. He is based in Canada. Welcome, Abhishu. We are honored to have you on Risk Roundup. Hi. Great to be here, Jayashree. Thank you for inviting me. Wonderful, Abhishu. So let's start talk. Let's begin the discussion by talking about the relationship between technology and geopolitics. What relationship do you see between emerging technology trends and the geopolitics? Sure. So, so. Geopolitics for the past, since at the end of World War II, has mainly revolved around oil, natural gas, currency, defense exports, etc. And, and through these variables, nations have grown their geopolitical power, nations have protected themselves from other countries. Um, but this has really been the circle that geopolitics has revolved around. And now a new era is beginning. And this new era is what I call next geopolitics. And it revolves around new technologies like artificial intelligence, blockchain, virtual reality, uh, CRISPR, all of these different technologies that we hear about every day in the headlines. They have a huge potential to affect geopolitics. The main relationship is in the way in which the geopolitics of technology could give countries new capabilities and new access. And the way in which countries could apply technologies to their own foreign policy making. Yes, very true. No, absolutely. And as technology progresses at a very rapid and unequal pace, I mean, as we see across nations, it's not equal in all the nations. Absolutely. How do you see? How do you see these emerging technology trends and the choices nations, decision makers at all levels, like you know, irrespective of a nation, whether it's a government or industries or organizations or academia or individuals. Irrespective of the choices nations decision makers make across NGIA, how do you see it intersecting to create different paths to the future? Yeah, it's a 
Good question. And you're right. The the way in which technologies are developing is very different from country to country. And just one example is artificial intelligence because we hear about it all the time. You look at artificial intelligence, the main countries are really the US, handful of countries in Europe, i.e. the UK, Germany, South Korea, Japan, China, Israel, and Russia. And if you think about the whole world, that's just a handful of countries in the entire world. And so these countries could have a major leg up I call this a new kind of development divide, a new kind of divide through AI before we divide the world based on their economic growth or their economic size or their population. Now we might divide up the world based on how much AI a country has or how advanced a country is with AI. But you're absolutely right. The way in which technologies are emerging is unequal. And that could be good or that could be bad. It could be good because certain countries, depending on how they play their cards, could take advantage. So an example is China. China is wants to become the world's AI leader by 2030. They want to have an AI industry valued at about $150 billion USD. Now, if you're, let's say, Bolivia in South America, and you want AI, you really have two options. Either you can nurture your own AI ecosystem, from the ground up, and that could take a while, or you could partner with China, and perhaps you could offer Chinese firms access to certain resources in exchange for AI. In fact, recently, Alibaba from China signed a deal to manage Kuala Lumpur. They want to turn Kuala Lumpur into a smart city. So in order for Kuala Lumpur to turn into a smart city, they've turned to Chinese AI, not American AI or European AI, not even Indonesian AI, to Chinese AI. So you're right, the way in which technology is developing is very unequal, and it, it could have major implications for the way in, the, the, the orientation of nations in the world, the geopolitical orientation. Yes, absolutely. And you gave a really good example about Kuala Lumpur and you know how Alibaba right. is uh, taking the lead on develop, make, making that as a smart city, and right. that is just the beginning. I mean, Alibaba is so huge, and if they are able to play their cards right, then even though Alibaba is listed on U.S. stock exchange, but the developments that we will see because of the Alibaba's, you know, lead, and I'm sure there are other companies also very, becoming very powerful, leading, you know, in the data analytics and creating the artificial intelligence. Because to create artificial intelligence, each of these nations, irrespective of Kuala Lumpur or, you know, any cities that they are trying to uh, develop into smart city or create, develop smart nations, they will have to have a lot of data first. You know, that is going to be the first step, right? They will have to collect a lot of data. They will have to collect a lot of, uh, uh, they will have to install a lot of, you know, IoT sensors everywhere. They right. will have to have a lot of uh, uh, data from healthcare and a lot of you know different uh, industries, and then they will be able to create some smart artificial intelligence for that respective nation because it's not that they can develop the AI data artificial intelligence from China and they use that same artificial intelligence for Kuala Lumpur. That is not going to work because each nation will have the specific intelligence that they will have to depend on. So Absolutely, it yeah. will be very interesting to see how they go further and how they, uh, you know, develop that collaborations. But that is a very interesting point you made that, you know, Kuala Lumpur, 
leaned on China and not on US. That is very interesting development. Yes, I think you're absolutely right. That I think what you're trying to say is everything has to be localized. Yes. The AI has to be localized based on the context, based on the environment. And what Ali, actually Alibaba, what Alibaba did, this was the first foreign deal that Alibaba signed outside of China when it comes to using AI uh, for smart city. And they chose Malaysia. Now, you could argue that Malaysia chose that and that Malaysia is sort of in value in Alibaba. But I think when we're talking about Chinese firms expanding outwards, especially the large, huge firms, there is always going to be a level of state influence and state control. And so Alibaba choosing Malaysia, in fact, this wasn't the only AI development that took place. Shortly after Alibaba signed a deal with Kuala Lumpur, Another firm, a facial recognition firm from China, signed a deal with a police force to supply that police force with facial recognition cameras. And I'm sure you hear that in China, the police are getting a lot of facial recognition capabilities. And so now these firms in China are now offering it to other countries. And Malaysia appears to be sort of uh, the first country where, where Chinese firms are applying this technology. But you're right, it has to be localized. Yeah, in some aspects, it's localized, but this very example that you gave about the facial recognition, that doesn't need to be localized. That's just the technology that anybody across nation can use. And that's also very interesting. So it looks like the countries, they are looking at the regional you know, support, not to go all the way to United States, because we are so far from uh, you know, Malaysia and uh, other countries in Asia. So they are looking and leaning on the local regional support. And they are, you know, that's why leaning towards China and uh, there could be other reasons. But I mean, as just the example just you gave about the facial recognition technology and as the pace of this technological revolution is on its way to fundamentally transform the way individuals and entities across nations or its governments or industries, organizations or academia, they live in cyberspace, geospace and space and they do things how they work, how they, you know, bank, how they shop, everything. So these nations, uh, everywhere they are getting impacted. So how do you see, I mean, one example you gave about how the nations, uh, how the local uh, nations like uh, uh, Malaysia are leaning on China, but how do you see these emerging technologies shifting the balance of power for nations, both individually and collectively? We, you gave an a very interesting example of how Malaysia, is leading to China, towards China, and not going all the way to United States, whereas United States has always had a lead on all these, you know, technologies because we have the biggest budget of, you know, research and development. But it looks like that, in spite of that, we are losing the battle here. You know, United States is losing the battle, and you know, China is capturing some of the market. Yes, no, you're right. You're right, and just to speak on the whole regionalization, I think that. What I'm seeing is that before we lived in a world where it was all about globalization, people talked about globalization, globalization, and they talked about technology only increasing the pace of globalization. But I think what we're seeing now is that through technology, we're actually seeing a regionalization of the world and, and more country and city specific initiatives and partnerships and relationships. So it's kind of the reverse is happening and that's, that's a big deal. Um, but, but yes, the, the, the nations are using technologies to change their future, essentially, to change their destiny. Yeah. Um, a great example is 
what UAE is doing. UAE has traditionally been a oil-rich nation. It's dependent on resources for its success, for its economy, for its geopolitical influence. Um, but now the UAE is doing incredible things. So, for example, by 2020, uh, the UAE wants to phase out its border security officers at airports. And, and this goes back to sort of the whole development divide thing, which is, you know, when you're traveling, you may travel to the UAE in 2020, 2022, and you might get off a plane and you might walk right out of the airport because AI and facial recognition will identify you and clear you. And then you might go to Europe and you might see in Europe, they still have the human officers. And you might say, hmm, it seems like the UAE is a little bit more advanced, a little bit more developed in this, in this regard. But the UAE is doing great things, especially when it comes to space. Uh, the UAE is not a traditional space power by any means, but they're the most visionary when it comes to space, more visionary than China and the US, I would say. They want to have the Abu Dhabi police force has unveiled a plan for 2057. And that call that plan calls for a police force. That plan calls for a space force. That plan calls for genomics police, if you can even think about what that means, genomics police. Um, and they want to grow vegetables in space and they want to have cities in, on Mars. And so this is, this is essentially the UAE turning to space technologies to really reorient its future and change what's, what's possible. Another, another example is what Chile is doing. Uh, scientists in Chile have created a climate change resistant crop seed. So this seed can grow certain fruits and vegetables, regardless if there's a flood or a drought or a major change in the temperature. Now, Chile is not a global power. Chile is not a global economy. But with this seed, they might be able to go to other countries in Latin America, perhaps maybe Argentina, and say, hey, Argentina, you're also going to suffer from climate change. Why don't you take this seed? And in exchange, why don't you use... Chilean banks to fund startups. I don't know. They could come up with anything, but the, the possibility exists now because of technology. Absolutely. You know, the, you made a very interesting examples. I mean, these all these desire or, you know, decisions to invest in certain technology or to develop certain technology goes back to probably, you know, their fundamental uh, lack of, you know, some resources or needs of certain industries. So I haven't studied much on Chile, why they are focusing so much on developing that uh, genetically engineered uh, seeds right. to uh, to be able to grow the crops anytime, whether they want to. I mean, Monsanto is doing a lot here, but the, I, there must be some reason why they are focusing so aggressively on the agriculture. I mean, the, in the coming years, we know that, you know, we won't have enough food. Right. The, very rapidly growing global population. So there, there must be some reason. But you made a very interesting point about uh, UAE, why they are so aggressively investing into border security and trying to automate everything. So we'll, it will be interesting to see how they go forward, you know, and how successful they are. Because while they have strong desire, well, not just UAE, but a lot of nations have very strong desire to lead because this, this is a level playing field now. They don't have to start, they don't have to compete, you know, the, from the uh, scratch in uh, going to the uh, levels through or the phases that uh, Western world went through. Yep. And they don't have to go through all those barriers. Now they have a level playing field. They can just uh, develop some AI technology or using blockchain or CRISPR technology and uh, 
uh, virtual reality or uh, all kinds of you know amazing technologies that are coming our way they can just uh, level the playing field start now and they they'll be able to catch up to any of the western countries so it's a very interesting time but from your observation what will be the most sought after technological resources uh, of to not only tomorrow but today also that you see across nations and how do you think that it's going to reshuffle the geopolitical relations so i think when we when we talk about so i think there's a multiple layers to this so when it comes to actual resources i think data is going to be an incredible incredibly important resource so uh, going back to that example of alibaba and kuala lumpur if you think about the amount of data that kuala lumpur is going to be creating and all of this data depending on how the deal is structured could be either completely given over to alibaba or alibaba could have a, a certain control over it if not all of it and if you can imagine all of this data being now scanned by ai and allowing alibaba to see certain patterns in kuala lumpur oh at 8 pm to 10 pm people are purchasing more milk i'm just making something up and by doing that alibaba might now alibaba is an e-commerce company might like much like amazon by doing that it could give alibaba a major competitive advantage business advantage in kuala lumpur if it decides to now sell milk at a cheaper price between 8 to 10 pm in kuala lumpur and that changes the playing field for businesses so data is one but in terms of the technology itself which technologies will be most in demand i think there's a short term look and a long term look so short term i think it's going to be stuff like industrial robots it's going to be uh certain blockchain innovations it's going to be uh certain ai innovation so for example in denmark an ai has been created that if you call the uh, ambulance if you call 911 the ai can listen to your voice and tell whether or not you're having a heart attack and so it can then tell the emerge so so things like that innovations like that i think are going to be really in demand especially in the emerging world if you can apply that same ai innovation to say china or india it has a huge amount of Uh, applications to help emergency responders so short term it's going to be ai industrial robots blockchain even then though there's the question of intellectual property uh, if denmark creates this what's to stop malaysia from creating uh, so there's real intellectual property concerns there but yeah. but long term i think it's going to be technologies like Uh, molecular manufacturing like synthetic biology uh, nanotechnology space mining i think those are really going to be the the big dominant dominant um verticals to pay attention to but none of these nations that we are talking about they have that uh, you know educational system that could create that kind of uh, intellectual power to be able to take benefit or take advantage of these you know uh, emerging technologies so it would be interesting to see how they catch up because none of these nations that we are talking about they have uh, anything compatible to the western world as far as the education system goes or their you know innovation system goes or because it's not just the to get an idea or to be able to develop a technology to from the concept phase to the commercialization phase and to be able to successfully go 
through and commercialize the idea innovation on any technology it's uh, there are a lot of different variables that in that are involved in that ecosystem and most of these nations they're not uh, mature in that manner so even though they are investing very aggressively and even though they are uh, going after all this technology to modernize and automate and uh, you know take benefit of this level playing field i am still very skeptical about how much they will be able to progress and how much they will be able to take advantage of or benefit from even china i mean you alibaba is leading these and going to uh, kuala lumpur and you know maybe you know other uh, places to collect all the data and help them become smarter but if you look within china Uh, they are also you know not uh, keeping very open internet they are virtual pro- they are uh, pretty much uh, closing down many of the vpns and there are a lot of internal uh, you know barriers that they are not looking at themselves to collect all the data from within china how will they collect that and how will they effectively use it so it is going to be very interesting how all these nations uh, develop these uh, amazing emerging technologies the power of potential that brings to them and be able to transform and uh, take ben, uh, you know level the playing field and uh, be competitive on a global scale um, the another factor is that you know the communication that is the biggest uh, challenge that i see you know even in china that advances in technology are continuing to make communication easier but the uh, the big challenge that i see is that even though this communication chal- uh, you know technology information communication and digitization effort that is going on will will it st- uh, allow us to transcend cultures and cultural you know barriers and uh, the value system in the right now you see across nation there is such a big battle about saving that respective nations culture and values and there right. is a lot of fear and a lot of backlash about not uh, wanting to have a sort of like you know convergence of the culture so how do you see that playing out on a on a global yes yeah i well just just to answer that the education educational aspect the the literacy of of countries is going to be incredibly important in determining uh how well they are in in adopting uh, new technologies but even there technologies could help out so for example um downloadable skills and i know it sounds incredibly far off in the future but darpa is actually working on that right now a handful of universities in japan in the us are working on that right now and it may take several decades to come but if somebody can learn the basics of machine learning or the basics of nanotechnology in a few seconds or a few minutes and if you apply that to a population of a country even if it's just 2 or 3% of the country that gets access to it it changes the ball game and another a potential solution to the to education gap is brain implants. Um Elon Musk has backed a company that's developing this. DARPA is also working on brain implants. And if you could give somebody access to the internet on demand, um even if they come from a poverty-stricken situation, it changes what they can do overnight. And as I said at the beginning, it's really going to be a question of how nations choose to use this technology. You know, if let's say india creates this brain implant technology will they go to the africa and and trade brain implants for access to resources it's anything's possible right so the the education education is also something that can be cured with or solved with with technology um as for the transcending of cultures 
it's really there's you know I, I'm gonna play devil's advocate because there's there's really two sides. There's the one side that says you know it advances in something like virtual reality where people will be able to communicate and interact and experience each other regardless of their geographic location, regardless of anything. Um, will transcend cultures. Really, it'll create a global digital community. But then there's the other side that says the way in which countries develop this technology could have an inherent bias. So what I mean by that is uh, Japan, for example. Japan right now is using AI in its patent system. So what AI is doing is it's doing the initial, initial uh, analysis of a patent that somebody's applied for. Now, in the future, Japan might give this system more control. It might say, okay, AI, I want you to do the initial vetting and say yes or no before you pass it on to a human. And it might so happen that a large amount of the patents that get rejected are Chinese. You know, it's a Chinese firm applying for the patent, or it's another a Russian firm applying for the patent. You know, Japan's geopolitical adversaries may be getting rejected. And if that's what, if that's if that happens, or if Japan exports this AI to Thailand, and it's now happening in Thailand, and it's happening in uh, you know Poland, wherever Japan has exported this AI, then it's going to reinforce cultures. It's going to reinforce the perspective, the political perspectives, the geopolitical perspectives that countries and societies have. Yes, absolutely. <clears throat> Sorry about that. No, you are right, right about that. Those factors, those variables are going to play a role. The point that you made about that the nations can catch up on the education because in the coming years or decades probably, we will be able to just implant some chip and, you know, we will be able to transfer the downloadable that you said. We'll be able to download all the knowledge and skills. But that also has many challenges because for someone who has never experienced or doesn't have that uh, maturity and understanding and wisdom, if you just implant even all the knowledge, it probably won't play any, it won't benefit to the level that the nations would want that to benefit because without uh, having an, any grasp about, you know, that uh, subject or topic that uh, the knowledge that is being downloaded, you cannot translate that into it's not just the knowledge, but the idea, imagination that you need to be able to create the innovations. Because without imagination, you cannot, uh, without any ideas or imagination, even though you have all the knowledge in the world, without that fundamental thing of imagining, you know, what it could do, what we can develop, how we can solve this problem, without having that, we can no nation can take the benefit of even the downloadable skills. So it will be interesting to see where it goes. But that right. is certainly an option, and the, the the we will have to see also how much acceptance and adaptation is that about implanting, you know, or downloading knowledge like that. There is going to be just the way you know the globalization had, was so rosy and everybody was so excited about it, but we still see the backlash on globalization right. because the because nations didn't prepare them so their you know respective nations the leaders didn't prepare their nations to see to go through the changes that were happening because of globalization and that's why we see even in united states there is a backlash against you know globalization so even though these technologies has tremendous power and potential and we could do great things there could be huge backlash 
So that is how much is going to be accepted across nation, what kind of adaptation it would there be. And uh, all those variables are st still, those challenges are still there. And we'll have to see how much acceptance is there across nation. But the nation's geo geopolitical constraints and national strategy, it dictates which technologies it will likely develop or adopt successfully. So there are a lot of variables. So what do you think are the determining factors of geopolitical constraints that determines when and whether a nation will adopt any new emerging technology? Sure. So I, I think really the, the answer is something that you said earlier, which is, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that nations are hungry. They want to compete. They want to succeed. And technology allows them to level the playing field. Uh, and so I think that's the, the, the big answer. But within that, I think there's going to be certain variables. So climate change is one of them. Um, the need to ensure that during the election in, in the UK, um, the government saw that so many people were losing their jobs. And so the way that they fixed that was by making high school free. So the reason why high school is free in a lot of the Western world actually comes from those policies of the UK in addressing the industrial revolution. So the automation and, and the effect of, on the job market could force countries to adopt technology or reject technology. Uh, the expansion of another country, the geopolitical choices of another country. There's so many different variables. There's so many different primers for countries to either adopt a technology or develop it or reject it. Um, you look at something like blockchain. Uh, right now, blockchain is slowly being used uh, for trade. The, the biggest ship manufacturer, the biggest shipping company in the world is in Denmark, and they've partnered with IBM to use blockchain to track the shipping. Now, if IBM, an American firm, can create a global system around this, blockchain for trade, then what happens tomorrow if uh, a country has tensions with the US and is excluded from this system? And this could be a new kind of geopolitical punishment the U.S. uses, a new tool of its foreign policy. And this is not a question of right or wrong. Every country will have these capabilities. But there are so many variables that could affect how a country adopts a technology, how they use it, and if they reject it. And rejecting is a real possibility. Yes, absolutely. Now, it's also, say, I mean, we all know that nation's technological trajectory in the coming years will be determined by also its geography and existing existing infrastructure. Because we have to see, uh, irrespective of which nation we are talking about, what kind of infrastructure they have in geospace or in cyberspace or space. Right. They may have all these desires and to compete and, you know, to reach certain level and do space mining or, you know, to have genetically, uh, you know, perfect uh, children and uh, to have all kinds of you know uh, innovations that technology that would empower them to compete on a global scale, but a lot of you know the geographical challenges and uh, their infrastructure challenges could you know prevent them from achieving their goals. So, do you still think that uh, geography plays a role in national trajectory when we evaluate the technology trends in cyberspace, geospace, and space? I think that geography isn't as important as it once was. So in in for the past 70 years, you know, if we look at traditional geopolitics, um, country like Saudi Arabia, country like Russia, a country like Qatar, a country like Indonesia, all of these oil and natural gas exporters, it's really was luck. 
you know, if they didn't have those resources underneath the ground, then they wouldn't be where they are today. They wouldn't, Saudi Arabia wouldn't have the foreign reserves it has today. It wouldn't have the geopolitical influence. Russia wouldn't have the geopolitical influence. So geography really determined the outcome of nations in the past. Now, geography is still going to matter and geography could be a constraint. Like what we were talking about, geography could be seen as a constraint, but I don't think geography is anymore the determining factor of a country's success. And you look at Venezuela, for example, uh, Venezuela right now, by all regards, politically, socially, economically, is in a very bad state. Uh, society is breaking down. People aren't getting food. Politics is it's in a really bad state. But that hasn't stopped Venezuela from launching the world's first digital currency in February this year. And what did they do with that currency? They went and they approached India and they said, if you buy oil with this currency, we'll give you a 30% discount. And so if geography was the only determining factor, Venezuela wouldn't have been able to do that. But thanks to technology, Venezuela was allowed, was able and was, was capable of doing something no other country has done before. And, and so geography still matters, but I don't think it matters as much as it used to. What about the labor flexibility and demographics? What role do you see it uh, playing in uh, technology development? So if we were living in a world where artificial intelligence and robotics didn't exist, um, then I would say that the labor force or didn't exist to the same magnitude that we're expecting it to play, then I would say that demographics and the size of a labor force will 100% determine the, the future of a nation. And a great example of that is Japan. Uh, Japan faces a really big demographic time bomb. Its population is shrinking. Uh, there are not a lot of children being born. A lot, of, a lot is happening with Japan's population. But thankfully, Japan is also an industrial automation power. And so even as its demographic crisis explodes, it could turn to robots to offset. In fact, what Japan is doing is it's investing in exoskeletons to help its elderly remain in the factory or remain on the farm. The average age of a farmer in Japan is 67 years old. And that's unheard of in the West, the 67 year old still farming. But through exoskeletons, this is still possible. So artificial intelligence and robotics and the automation of work could help offset the labor and demographic crisis. Sure. Japan, especially it's an aging economy, so they will have to focus more on how to keep uh, their population more productive and more, right. uh, you know, functional uh, as long as possible because uh, they, it's an aging population. But countries like India, where right. our demographic is, in India, it's, uh, you know, very interesting how much they will be able to uh, contribute if they all, uh, you know, are empowered and have all the resources that they need then how far they can go. It could be a great, you know, uh, developments could be seen from that nation, but it will be interesting to see how the other variables come into play and how the infrastructure and the supporting ecosystem for any uh, innovation to reach the commercialization stage, you know, reaches, uh, is successfully implemented in India because we haven't seen still a billion, you know, huge uh, uh, innovations coming out from India. So right. Will right. Be, it will be interesting to see. But uh, another variable is also, I mean, other than demographic, is the capital available investment. Because even though you have ideas and uh, innovations, if you don't have enough uh, resources, financial resources, uh, then you know, no, no initiative uh, can uh, succeed or take the next step. So how do you 
where do you see the capital moving uh, currently as far as these emerging technologies go uh, across nations how do you see that playing a determining role in the success of uh, any nation yeah capital is going to determine um what countries can do and that's what makes institutions like the asian infrastructure investment bank that china launched aiib such a powerful institution uh, because if a country like let's say cambodia wants to develop a very strong sector when it comes to virtual reality they're going to need capital they're going to need mobility but in order to get that traditionally cambodia would have either had to develop the money internally or go to western banks like the imf or world bank but now it can go to china and and china's bank the aiib is very different to the imf and world bank there's no uh uh structural policies or structural changes that countries have to make so capital is really going to matter but it's it's also going to be a question of um how nations play their cards really a country like cambodia could trade another country and access for access to capital what the geopolitics of technology does is it gives countries as i said at the beginning new capabilities and new access and it's really up to the government and the country itself to determine how it wants to use this technology or how it plans to acquire a certain technology or how it plans to steal a certain technology um so but capital is incredibly important it's also going to be a question of digital currencies you know when we think about capital today we really mean uh you know fiat currencies but capital could also be digital currencies we also have to think about digital currencies like bitcoin but we also have to think about now digital currencies in the virtual world virtual digital currencies uh, so how a nation executes its vision isn't a singular uh you know a singular template anymore it's it's multilayered it's multifaceted it's so complex but it's it, in a good way it gives countries a lot of options yes absolutely Each, they all have different uh, level of maturity and they all have different uh, you know state of their infrastructure and uh, education and uh, capital investments so there are a lot of variables that plays a role and also uh, the nations you know regulatory environment each nation has a different you know way they regulate and they they have different sets of regulations so that is also going to play a very important role in the coming years how do you see the especially the our western world regulatory environment is very different than the uh, developing world if we say so you know so how do you see that uh, playing a role when it comes to emerging technologies so for about 14 months uh my firm was consulting with one of the world's highest valued startups and we were helping them understand how their for the policy and other trends and one of the uh patterns that i noticed was that public policy used to be about protecting a worker safety or consumer safety or protecting um local businesses from foreign businesses now it's becoming geopolitical the regulatory environment is increasingly being influenced by geopolitics and countries are taking all kinds of all kinds of approaches to regulating their their um their sectors a great example is the recent uh, laws that were passed in Europe the gen- general data privacy uh regulation in Europe and with within this data privacy law is actually a set of regulations that 
require companies who are using AI to explain to the customer how that AI is thinking. And so this is one of the first AI public policies that we're seeing, and it's really scaring foreign businesses as to how do they comply with this? Because they're not used to having to explain to customers how their algorithms are thinking. Now, could this also be seen as Europe's way of controlling the AI market by controlling how foreign businesses sell AI in Europe, potentially, if they wanted to do that? I know that in China, in, in, in India, for example, India has banned self-driving cars. India banned self-driving cars last year in order to protect jobs. And that is a major public policy move in order to stop automation from creating social and economic and political unrest. So regulatory is as important as capital in, in these in these absolutely absolutely and even in nations like India I mean when the labor force there is such a you know young uh, yes. very available and ready labor force very cheap then they are not going to spend a lot of money I mean they have that AI strategy but when they try to do the automation of you know industries and try to uh, automate a lot of processes, they will feel, you know, see the same backlash that, you know, we, you are talking about because uh, why would, you know, people be willing to give up their jobs and, you know, let the industries be automated when they are willing to work at such a, you know, dirt cheap price. So right. developing these technologies is also very cost uh, costly, you know, developing AI technology is not uh, uh, that economic or uh, that affordable for a lot of nations. So that is also going to play a role that... Uh, even though nations may have capability to develop the technology, whether the social acceptance is there. So because without it being accepted, there is no point of uh, developing the technology, even if it has, you know, they cannot advance further. So do you see these emerging technologies in areas like AI or robotics or molecular manufacturing uh, being accepted across nations enthusiastically? Do do you see that this social acceptance uh, is even being considered by the nation's regulators or nation's technology leaders, uh, whether they should be developing that technology or uh, whether they should uh, take other you know, uh, option? I, based on what I'm seeing and based on the conversations I'm having, I think that most countries are not thinking you know, to 2050, 2100. They're, they're, they're still operating on today's challenges. And it makes sense. Today's challenges are very pressing. So I think that people are going to be jolted. Societies are going to backlash only when something that is personal to them is affected. So for example, Amazon has same day delivery now uh, in Canada and the US. And it's great. It's a great, very efficient, very uh, a great business move by Amazon. But it doesn't affect People like you and I, literally, we, we benefit as consumers. And tomorrow, Amazon might say, instead of using human truck drivers to deliver the goods to home, we're going to use drones and autonomous drones, too. And that still doesn't affect you and I. And you and I may feel great about that because we're getting our goods much faster and much more efficiently and potentially much cheaper. When you and I will care and societies will care when a company comes and offers the same services that you and I provide for 10 bucks a month because it's AI doing it. Then it's going to be, then we're going to be jolted by automation and we're going to say, what's going on here? And when that happens, we're going to see massive social unrest, massive political unrest, massive economic turmoil, because the amount of jobs at risk of being automated is, isn't 
two or three percent of the population. In Ethiopia, it's 85 percent of jobs. Yeah. That's a huge number. So yeah. I think that governments and countries are, will happily accept technologies if they improve quality of life. But the moment they start to affect people too much in terms of taking their jobs away or affecting their privacy or affecting their ability to uh, maneuver in a society, the moment their certain rights and freedoms and way of living is affected in a way they don't like, that's when we're going to see backlash. That's why India's ban is so interesting because India doesn't really have an automation strategy. India doesn't really have an AI vision the same way China or the US has, but they've banned self-driving cars because they were clearly thinking ahead as to what's possible. Yes, very true. And uh, that's what we have already seen how little prepared any nation was, even including United States, you know, with the globalization, the impact of globalization. Right. And now the impact of automation, no nation is prepared for that. And when we see the job losses, more than privacy, I, I think uh, security, job security, financial security, uh, that is going to play even bigger role than the privacy. Privacy people will not care much. I mean, even with this Facebook, what happened uh, recently, people are still, you know, going on Facebook and people are still sharing everything that they used to share. They are not too focused on the privacy thing, but when they start losing jobs, when the money, you know, stops coming in, that's where we will see huge backlash and, you know, huge, uh, uh, unless nations are prepared, the decision makers, you know, not only the government, but the industries, how to, you know, make sure that those resources that are losing jobs, the human resources, that somehow they can use them and, you know, somehow they can retrain them and give them, you know, opportunities to make a living, we are going to see the battle between the human workforce and machine workforce. And it's going to be very interesting in the coming years. So now the, another variable is also, you know, all these nations. I think we talked a little bit earlier about the research. The United States invests so much money in the basic research and development. And the, the ideas and innovations emerging are so exponentially, you know, there is a, such exponential growth. It's not like what used to be before that you invest in uh, basic research and then you know something uh, commercial will come out of it after several decades now the changes coming are so rapid so the other than you know few nations who are investing like you know india uh, us is investing china has just started investing in you know in uh, this basic uh, research and development and some other western nations are investing you don't see much investment uh, across nations so how do you see that playing a role when it comes to this emerging technology development? You know, there's there's not a lot of what what, I, what I'm seeing is a lot of countries have what they call an industry 4.0 strategy or blueprint or or playbook, uh, but there's really not much depth to it. There's really not much, um, you know, forward thinking, visionary. Let's reach for the stars. It's more. How do we nurture the ecosystem? And it's much of the same, regardless of geography. It's much of the same ideas. When you look at countries like the US, Israel, Russia, China, Japan, South Korea, uh, when it comes to AI, these countries are clearly reaching for the stars. In fact, Israel is doing, when it comes to military AI, what no other country is doing. They, in 2008, Israel was developing an autonomous missile defense system that could autonomously predict protect Israel. And Israel was planning for a war with Iran, which clearly comes timely now when we're seeing what's going on in Syria. 
but they were planning for a war with Iran, and they were worried that if they went into a war with Iran, that Iran would launch so many projectiles into Israel that the human controllers and the missile system itself wouldn't be able to protect it, but AI could. And so the, the countries have certain, there's only a handful of countries that have the vision, but I, I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. Um, I, I think that, like you said earlier, it's really going to be a matter of constraints. So if a country like Guinea tomorrow in Africa realizes that, you know, it, it is not on the industrial automation bandwagon, it's not on the AI bandwagon. Well, Guinea is rich in resources and Guinea can trade those resources for technology. Guinea can create a blueprint. You look at what Saudi Arabia is doing. Saudi Arabia, nobody really looked at Saudi Arabia five years ago as an innovative country. It was more of just an oil exporter. But you look at what Saudi Arabia is doing with Neom, their mega city that's you know worth 500, going to be cost $500 billion. And you're seeing Saudi Arabia sort of shifting what it's doing. Now, Saudi Arabia has a blueprint. It's called Vision 2030. But, you know, a uh, child in itself. And so I think it's really going to be a matter of constraints. It's also going to be a matter of what certain blocks do. And what I mean by that is if you look at, let's say, the Association of Southeast Asian Nations in Southeast ASEAN in Southeast Asia, uh, ASEAN was created to be a economic bloc to rival that of the European Union. But that doesn't mean that it will remain an economic bloc. Uh, if, if one of their members, if Vietnam creates an AI technology that helps the financial sector or, hates, or helps with microfinance or helps with policing, predictive policing, perhaps Vietnam gives it to ASEAN to share through, to all member states, right? And that, that sort of changes, do you need a vision or do you not need a vision? But to address one thing, which is the whole, the whole privacy, I think when we, when we talk about privacy, we talk about privacy today being, uh, you know, is, are my emails being read by an intelligence agency or is Facebook watching me after I log out? And these are real concerns, but I think people are really gonna care about privacy when we see what's happening with China's social credit system happening in, in the West. If, if even 10% of that happens, if you post a comment online or if you post a certain video, even this interview, if the AI system sees this as negative for whatever reason, and now you and I can't buy a train ticket, then people are really gonna say, well, what's going on here? I need to, I need to lash out at the government potentially. Yes, absolutely. That is very interesting. You know, I, what China's experiment is on the social credit system. It's interesting to see how, you know, people accept it in the coming years. But do you see that happening in the Western world that we will have that kind of social credit system and people will actually uh, be willing to participate in that? Well, I, I don't think anybody would be willing to participate in China. It's it's because it's an authoritarian country. People are forced to. That. See, that's the difference. It's an yeah. authoritarian country and we are a democratic country in uh, here, Western world. And a lot of countries, you know, I, I, I think that there's going to be a backlash. I mean, we do want to empower uh, accountability and good behavior and, uh, you know, responsibility in a lot of different areas. But uh, to have that uh, rating of each and every individual, each and every action, actually. Right. That is going to be very interesting. But yeah, you are right that that's where, you know, the privacy uh, will play a bigger role. Uh, right now, it doesn't play, people are not too concerned. But when, when that starts happening, you're absolutely right that, that they will be concerned and they would want to uh, 
thing you know have a some sort of you know balance between privacy and security absolutely absolutely and, and it's also the there's also the, the the demographic divide right i think the older generation cares more about privacy than my generation millennials they don't really care about privacy as much as the older generation does but if millennials now are unable to like in china if the social credit system is restricting certain families from sending their kids to certain schools and you know if you're a millennial couple and you can't send your child to certain schools because you uploaded pictures on instagram that were inappropriate or that were dangerous then that changes the ball game entirely and I, I could see Western governments adopting parts of this system and applying it simply because the amount of disruption that's on the horizon, the amount of disruption that will affect societies and political systems, governments are really going to look for new ways to maintain control, maintain stability. And if there is a way to do that by monitoring people's LinkedIn posts or Twitter posts or Snapchat or Facebook or whatever they're posting on, and either giving them better quality and better access or restricting access in order to increase stability i could see it happening in to some degree yes we'll we'll it will have to wait and see how that plays out but uh, you are right that uh, in china especially they developed this because there is a lot of inner turmoil that they have and uh, they have to control they no amount of military will be able to uh, control the internal challenges that china has so they have to come up with system like this and they have to uh, control it and uh, you know manage it somehow the complex challenges that they are facing but western world we are democratic uh, society here so we, it will be interesting how yeah. even the some aspects of this you know gets played i mean i am all for accountability we, we need to uh, make sure that each and every individual or each and every entity that they are accountable for the decisions that they take Absolutely. because at the end of the day it's all about uh, you know risk that we, each one of us create and if we by our uh, this kind of systems if we are able to manage the risk that we are creating or manage the risk uh, in an effective manner then uh, you know we will have to see how to implement this kind of system but that day is not here yet but uh, what 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 big sh- what shifts do you see in the coming years as far as the balance of geopolitical power goes because of this technology trends so i i see that so i think we have to look at what what are really the assumptions that have been made about how technology will af- affect geopolitics so i remember about 4 or 5 years ago i was reading uh reading up on the geopolitics of technology because you know when i when i was talking about artificial intelligence and blockchain or not blockchain artificial intelligence and automation about 4 or 5 years ago it wasn't really in the headlines as much as it is today so i was reading up on it and i i remember coming across one of the big consulting firms and their thoughts on the geopolitics of technology were there where they were is how battery prices will fluctuate that was their idea when it comes to geopolitics of technology so it wasn't really a big deal in their eyes and i think one of the assumptions has been that a technology and the geopolitics of technology will not change which countries have power that the countries with power will only increase their power and the countries without power will still need the countries with power and the second assumption has been that technology will essentially um give populations 
uh, more freedom and and more uh, more li liberal values and more liberty and more ability to do whatever they want. And I think those two assumptions are being challenged now. I think that you're seeing that power is being decentralized, that technology is leading to a more multipolar world. And an example of that, like I talked earlier, you can now go to the AIIB for funding. You don't have to go to the IMF or World Bank. Uh, Malaysia went to China for AI. They didn't go to the US for AI. That was unimaginable just even five years ago. Um, so we're, the, the, that, that assumption is definitely being challenged. And when it comes to technology giving citizens more freedom, as we were just talking about with China's social credit system, it may not necessarily be true either. So the, the big shifts that I'm seeing in the future is which countries are going to matter. And it won't necessarily be the countries that have mattered in the past. You know, we in the past 70 or odd years, the G7 really mattered. It, you know, when the G7 met every year, it was a big deal. It was, and you know, this is the, they're going to decide the fate of the global economy, the fate of the world. Uh, and, and or the G8, and then Russia was excluded and it became the G7. Now when the G7 meets, besides the US, it isn't really that important what these countries are saying as much as when the Shanghai Cooperation Organization meets, right? And that's far more important, or when the Eurasian Economic Union meets, or when ASEAN meets. And so there's a diffusion of power. That's the big shift. And the countries that are going to benefit are changing and they're different. And the systems and the systems that have operated for for decades if not centuries are being totally redesigned and and that's good and bad right yes absolutely and this is we are talking only about the shift in the as far as the power goes of different nations but in the coming years we'll see a shift from of the power from even the governments to yeah. you know some uh, smaller groups or technology corporations that will you know have an equal role or equal say yeah. as far as you know what decisions are made in that those countries so uh, we are seeing even the shift of power from the governments to the corporations and to a lot of individuals so it's a whole different world that we are seeing and there is so much to talk about i mean how the 3d manufacturing will play impact or you know the geopolitics how CRISPR technology will impact geopolitics. There are many, many technologies to discuss and many different nations to talk about, but we have only one hour. So there is no way we can uh, do justice to all those different uh, topics and uh, uh, technologies. But how would you summarize the future? The, the future is completely unknown. That's how I'll summarize it. It's, it's very, um, we're entering, as my colleague says, we're entering a twilight zone. and Anything is possible. And I think that any company or any government or any organization that's black and white in this world isn't going to do very well. They have a big picture and they have to imagine new possibilities because that's really the gist of the geopolitics of technology is if you can imagine what's possible, then you can change your destiny. And that's a great thing for some countries who want to grow their power. And it's a scary thing for some countries that want to maintain their power. And that clash is going to be a big determinator of the geopolitics of technology in the future. Absolutely. So what would you like to tell our global viewers and listeners, especially about your books and initiatives that you're working on? Sure. So I work at a firm, as you said at the beginning, called Center for Innovating the Future. Um, and, and that is a strategy innovation lab based in Toronto. 
and we help companies understand how artificial intelligence and robotics and other technologies will affect business and geopolitics. And so we have a range of workshops, a range of consulting services that we provide, and you can learn more at innovatingfuture.com. And I've also written um, two books. They're right here. Uh, the first one is called, as you said at the beginning, Next Geopolitics, Volume 1, and Next Geopolitics, Volume 2, both of which are available on Amazon. Um, and I'm writing my third book, which should be published this summer, called Go.ai, which stands for Geopolitics of Artificial Intelligence. And I'm on Twitter. I'm on LinkedIn. So if you'd like to connect and have a chat, I'm, I'm very accessible. Wonderful. So thank you so much, Abhishek, for participating in Risk Roundup today. We appreciate your thoughtful insight on technology trends and the future of geopolitics. And our global viewers and listeners will benefit tremendously from what you had to say today. So even if a single individual or entity can understand the technology trends and disruption based on the understanding they receive from the discussion we had today, this Risk Roundup Dialogue has been of service and we thank you for that. Thank you so much, Ayshree. It was great to be here. Thank you. Wonderful. So since the politicization of technology is inevitable, now more than ever, each one of us should evaluate the potential impact of technology trends on our respective nations and be prepared for what is to come. Risk groups, cybersecurity, geosecurity, and space security risk research centers are created for this very reason to identify, evaluate, and manage the security risk facing NGIOA in CGS, that means nations, its government, industries, organizations, and academia in cyberspace, geospace, and space. We at Risk Group believe that risk management, security, and peace, they walk together hand in hand. Though security is related to management of threats and peace to the management of conflict, risk management is related to management of security vulnerabilities as well as management of conflict. It is not possible to conceive any one of the three without the existence of the other two. All three concepts feed into each other. We believe that the security we build for ourselves is precarious and uncertain until it is secure for everyone across nations. Tradition becomes our security, so if we build a culture of managing risk effectively, it will lead us to security and security will lead us to peace. Let's manage the existing and emerging risk together. For more information on the risk roundups, to watch the risk roundup videos or hear the risk roundup podcast, please go to riskgroupllc.com and do not forget to subscribe and share. Until next time, I'm Jayashree, host of Risk Roundup, signing off. See you next time. Thank you.